know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to speak with Carolyn Fuchs from the Center for Pre-Law Advising at UW-Madison. Caroline is a graduate of Cardozo Law School, where she focused on immigration and international law. After graduating, Caroline worked for Planned Parenthood New York City and practiced immigration law while chairing the Committee on Women and the Law at the New York County Lawyers Association. Prior to law school, Caroline worked for the Clinton Foundation in New York and Rwanda, she earned a BA and an MPA from Clark University. Since returning to her hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, Caroline has been working as an immigration attorney concentrating on asylum and protections under the Violence Against Women Act. The Center for Pre-Law Advising is also a resource that is available to alumni and students. We know that we have many graduates of the department listening as well. First, though, we wanted to talk to Caroline about her academic and professional path from Madison, Wisconsin to college to an MPA to law school and finally back here to UW-Madison. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Carolyn. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. To start things off, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what you do for the university and maybe how you got here like through um, all your different education and law school and all that? Absolutely. So I am the assistant director at the Center for Pre-Law Advising. And the Center for Pre-Law Advising, we are an advising unit that serves all UW students and alumni, regardless of school or college, who are thinking about exploring or in the process of applying to law school. Um, We are housed under the Office of Undergraduate Advising, with pre-professional advising and co-located with pre-health advising. Um, And our job is to help prepare people for thinking about exploring and then the actual process of applying to law school uh, from the starting point of how do I even begin? Where should I apply? What are the requirements for applying through selecting the school that they may want to go to? Um, I could talk about my sort of professional path to this job. Does that answer your question about the unit? Yeah, yeah, that is perfect. And yeah, if you want to go into uh, some of your education and how you got here. Yeah, and the the last thing I'll say about about the Center for Pre-Law Advising is we serve students in a number of ways. One of our primary avenues is through one-on-one advising. Um, So having one-on-one conversations about someone's path, their interests, and then the process of applying because the the reality is with professional graduate school, but professional school in particular, is that there is no automatic timeline and in, for law school, no requirements. So that journey to law school can look very different for everyone. Um, and I can be sort of a good example of sort of a varied story to law school and then what I do today. Um, so my background is that I am from Madison. I grew up here and I left to go to college. I went to Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. It's the smallest university in the United States. 
and I majored in international development and social change there. I went, to, I went to college thinking I would be a teacher and realized pretty quickly that was not the right fit for me. And I ended up actually taking a year off after my first year. And during that year, lived in Ghana in West Sub-Saharan Africa for six months uh, doing HIV AIDS education. And that was a real turning point for me to sort of open up this new area of interest. So I went back to Clark, majored in international development and social change, um, completed my degree there, and then also uh, completed a master's in public administration. So MPA can mean public affairs, which is what it means at the La Follette School, or it can mean public administration. And that's what my degree is in. Um, they're similar. Um, they're all under sort of that public affairs, public policy administration umbrella. Um, but I always say public, uh, public administration is geared a little bit more towards the administrative aspects or organizational and management aspects of things like government agencies and nonprofits. Uh, and how I ended up getting that degree is sort of happenstance. Uh, Clark has a program similar to UW and La Follette where you can get an accelerated master's in a fifth year. And at Clark, if you meet certain requirements, you can get it for free. So I met those requirements. And to be honest, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had already sort of opened the door to immigration law and doing that sort of work. Um, but I, I didn't know kind of where I was going to lead. And so it sort of made sense to take advantage of getting this free master's degree. It also was sort of grounding in the sense that you can probably guess from the name of my major that it was uh, very, very academic and very theory-based. And I don't think equipped me with a lot of really functional skills for the workplace. Um, and my master's in public administration certainly did that. You know, how do you budget? How do you create organizational development? How do you manage um, those sort of real tangible skills? Um, after I finished my master's degree, I moved to New York because I had always wanted to move there and I had friends there. So I moved to New York and I ended up interning for the International Rescue Committee, the Clinton Foundation, and then eventually through the Clinton Foundation was hired to work for what at the time was called the Clinton HIV AIDS Initiative in Rwanda, uh, doing uh, healthcare analytic work essentially, uh, developing a baseline of their healthcare system as they sort of ramped it up to what it is today. Um, and so that was sort of my path. As I was finishing undergrad, I kind of knew I would probably go to law school. I had interned for an asylum attorney um, and I didn't really know a lot about that before getting this internship and really found sort of a cross section of um, gender equity and justice and immigration work, which was sort of two passions of mine, um, working on gender-based asylum and then eventually VAWA cases in law school. And so I sort of knew I would go to law school, but I wasn't really ready for that. I knew it was going to be really serious. I knew it was the start of, you know, my true quote profession. And I wanted to make sure the international work wasn't for me long term. Um, so while I was in Rwanda, I sort of came to realize I was working a lot of the healthcare um, healthcare places I were in, was in were in refugee camps. And I really kind of came back to that passion for um, you know, forced migration, migration issues, and immigration work, and realized, you know, the work I wanted to do was in the United States. I wanted to be an immigration attorney, and so I moved back to the U.S. I studied for the LSAT. I applied and started law school at Cardozo in New York.
That is how I got to law school. Everyone asks me, what did you do? How many years did you take off? Right. And I, to this day, cannot, I think it was three. I graduated with my master's in 2006 and started law school in 2009. So that sounds about right to me. That is a fascinating uh, and very detailed story. I I'm, I would love to hear in a different podcast about, you know, all the other things that you've been doing. But today we're talking about the Center for Pre-Law Advising. Yeah. Sort of, it feels like a tangential story. And I tend to share it because I think for a lot of our applicants, um, it's helpful for them to see that there's no one path um, and that you can use time between undergraduate and law school in a variety of different ways that will benefit you in your profession once you join the law. Yeah, absolutely. What can you tell us about the Center for Pre-Law Advising? Like I'm thinking, especially today, and I'm even thinking about this, uh, a lot of students are wondering if law school is right for them, if, you know, should they take that gap year, should they take those multiple years off? Can you start off by, by telling us maybe some of the reasons that you tell people to go to law school for, like some of the top reasons or some of the, the things that you see a lot of successful law school applicants and graduates um, going to law school for? I think you need to go to law school if you want to be a lawyer. I'm never going to tell anyone a JD is invaluable. Uh, in my life, even not working as an attorney, it is valuable. Uh, there's something about that degree that gives you sort of automatic credit, whether or not you deserve it on certain issues, right, and topics or assumed expertise. Um, it carries a weight in our society, whether or not that's right or wrong, that's just sort of how it is. And so I think that historically the feeling was if you don't know what to do, just get a law degree because it's universally valuable. And while I think there's some truth to that, the reality is, is that the investment in the degree is not really worth, uh, you know, being taken more seriously at, you know, a social function, right? Um, you can get, you know, that expertise and value in a lot of different ways. So when I say to when people say to me, I don't know if I should go to law school, my primary question is, do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to do the work that lawyers do? Do you need a JD to meet your professional goals? Okay. And so I think the two areas where it is really necessary are to be a lawyer, to be practicing law, meaning representing clients or institutions, you know, filing in court, um, you know, representing people in negotiations, um, mergers and acquisitions. Um, in front of you know criminal trials, civil trials, immigration, that sort of thing. Um, and the other place it's kind of necessary is in high level policy work. So a lot of the big national or international you know policy think tanks frequently prefer people with JDs um, in those roles. Um, it's not ubiquitous, but it tends to be a preference. So that's more what we would call a JD advantage job, where you're not practicing law, but you're relying heavily on the knowledge and expertise you acquired from your JD to do your work. Uh, and so I think, how do you figure out, do you need this, this degree to be, to meet your career goals? And I think if you see yourself as 
traditionally in the lawyer sense, it's very clear, right? I got to go to law school if I want to represent people in a criminal trial. Um, but if it's more on the policy side or business side, it can be a little murkier. Um, and where you sort of figure that out is through, you know, knowledge in the profession, um, talking to people in the industry you want to be in, talking to people. I always say when you see people or go to a lecture or meet with a professor or um, are in an internship and you meet someone who has a job you would want, talking to them about how they got there, I think is, is very valuable. Um, so that's sort of how you make that determination to figure out if you want to be a lawyer, I think the best way to do it is to get exposure to the work as closely as you can. So either working for a legal organization or in a law adjacent organization. So an organization that's serving, you know, the same population that legal organizations are serving. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that is excellent advice for a lot of students I know. I am definitely taking a lot of that to heart as well. When you have students coming in and now virtually to the Center for Pre-Law Advising, I'm sure you get a lot of like poli-sci mm -hmm. majors and a lot of legal studies majors. Um, but can you, can you speak at all to to your experience seeing students apply and get into law school that aren't coming from these, you know, like necessarily traditional pre-law majors? Or I guess another way I can ask that is, do you have to be majoring in political science and legal studies to get into a really good law school? No. So there, there is no, there is nothing you have to do as an undergraduate in order to be qualified to apply to law school. It truly, law schools truly do not have preferences when it comes to majors, minors, certificates, okay? They do not expect or require you to have any legal experience whatsoever. I think that when it comes to what would prepare me to be a competitive applicant, it's much more skill-based than that. So in short, to answer your question, I see people applying to law school successfully and being successful in law from all sorts of different majors, right? Engineering, um, all the STEM, I work with people who are dance majors. I work with people who are theater majors. Um, I have colleagues that were fine arts majors myself. You know, certainly poli-sci, history, econ, those are what we think of as being more traditional. But in from the law school's perspective, they truly do not care, right? They care about sort of your skill. And so when I'm thinking about preparing for law school, I'm thinking much more about you know, what do you need to do to be successful in law school and, and be a lawyer? And one of the primary skills is writing. So, you know, the only disadvantage of some majors is some are more writing heavy than others. And so if you're in a major that's less writing heavy um, or academic writing heavy, I tend to say, take a class to focus on that, right? Take seriously honing that craft. Um, you know, reading, anyone in university is reading extensively, right? You're going to get that skill during your four years, no matter what. Um, the sort of breadth of skills, critical thinking, analytical reasoning, um, you're going to, at a school like University of Wisconsin, you're going to develop those no matter what major you're in. Um, so the long intuitive is it truly doesn't matter what major, what you major in an undergrad and our general advice is major in what you're interested in and what you're passionate about, because what does matter are your grades. 
okay? And people who tend to be successful in the application process have majored in what they care about because then they do better academically, right? Um, there is one exception to that, which is some very specific types of patent law. Um, in order to sit the patent bar, which you need to be a patent attorney, you have to meet certain STEM or science-based credentials as an undergrad. Um, so that is a whole other conversation, um, but that is the only exception. And that's a very small niche part of law, right? Um, but that's the only exception to, it truly doesn't matter what you study in undergrad, as long as you are giving yourself the space to sort of hone those overarching skills. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And I, I know I'm going to want to, we're going to want to talk about uh, the actual application process mm -hmm. in a little bit, but I wanted to first ask what kind of guidance you guys have on or for students that are trying to think whether to apply to law school right out of undergrad or right out of their master's program, um, or, you know, if they should take a couple of gap years or take one, you know, what okay. kind of uh, guidance do you guys have for students that are um, trying to answer those questions? It really depends. So the advice I would give someone is really depends on their individual goals, okay? So I will start with sort of the broad, the broad stroke, which is that the average age of the incoming law student is someone in their mid twenties. It's not 21, 22, right? So it's not people coming straight out of traditional undergrad. Um, when we look at the makeup of first year law classes, so first year law students across the nation, the majority of those students are not straight from undergrad, okay? So that's important to know for a few reasons. One is that it really normalizes that actually, even though it feels like all of your friends are applying to law school or know what their plan is and are moving forward, most people don't come straight from undergrad, okay? Um, at most institutions, if you come straight from undergrad, you are in the minority, okay? The other reason it's important to understand that is because when you're thinking about comparative applications and being competitive at a law school, realizing you're applying alongside people who may have a few years of professional experience, right? Or may have a few years of doing something else that elevates their application, right? Whether that's being immersed in a language, right? Living abroad and being immersed in a language, working in a professional capacity, um, trying your hand at a startup, uh, you know, spending time just sort of getting to know yourself or trying on a different profession, um, you know, that not only professional development, but personal development time, right? And that makes a difference in applications generally. Uh, the other important thing, the other sort of broad stroke to understand in terms of that when people are coming into law school is that that difference between the percentage of people that come straight out of undergrad gets smaller and smaller, the higher ranked a school is, okay? So when we're talking about the top law schools in our country, and I can talk more about ranking if that's in interesting uh, to listeners, is that the more competitive law schools, we're seeing a smaller and smaller percentage of people getting offered spots straight out of undergrad. With a school like Northwestern, it's less than 10%. Yale, it's around 15%. I think it's about the same for Harvard, okay? 
So if you are applying to law school and your goal is a top law school, you need to think really seriously about taking at least one year, but more like two to heighten you know, the competitive nature of your application. So that's one reason we advise people to do it. The other reason is that, you know, just logistically for a lot of people, depending on their work schedule, their school schedule, their personal schedule, doing the work of taking the LSAT and applying to law school during your junior and senior year just may not be realistic. The LSAT takes about four months of intensive study at 15 to 20 hours a week. Um, I couldn't have done that during my undergraduate schedule. Uh, and applying to law school, we say, takes about the same amount of work as a three credit course. So right, expecting eight to 10 hours a week um, to be putting into your law school applications during the first semester of your senior year. Depending on who you are, that may or may not be realistic. Um, another reason people take that gap time is to do that experimentation with is this the path for me? It's really hard to make an informed decision about your professional path when you've never been immersed in the professional world. Um, it's really hard to understand what degrees you need to meet your professional goals in an industry without having fully worked in it. Uh, another reason people take that gap time that I highly encourage is if they're not kind of what I had, which is they were not quite sure what their career path was, right? They think they might wanna to go to law school, but maybe they wanna be a journalist, right? Um, they think they might wanna to go to law school, but also their degrees in social work and maybe that's the path for them. And so spending a couple of years in that other industry can one, build really valuable skills uh, for being a lawyer, but also really make clear what the right path for you to move forward on is. Yeah, absolutely. That is all excellent advice. What kind of funding or scholarship do you guys see available for students um, at law schools? And I'm wondering this, especially uh, concerning, you know, are students that take those gap years and take, uh, you know, time to really explore themselves and accrue professional development and really build their resume, are you seeing that those students are more competitive for scholarships and funding? I'm gonna kind of answer that in two part, which is what does, what do the finances of this look like generally, right? And then the other question is, is how do I make myself competitive for scholarships? The reality is the average law student takes on about $100,000 in debt, give or take, okay? Even if you have a full ride. And that's important to understand as we were talking about before is why I say, while a JD is sort of universally value, valuable, it doesn't mean it's worth that investment, okay, if you're not getting the professional outcome you need from it. Um, so that's sort of the financial reality, and there are ways to mitigate it and navigate it, but I don't ever want to sugarcoat it, right? Most people graduating from law school who have to take out loans are living with a substantial debt burden. Now, how you deal with that debt burden depends on, frankly, what kind of law you go into and what the earning potential is of that career, right? There are people who go into, quote, big law, so working for huge major law firms, where out the gate, graduating, they're making over $100,000 a year, sometimes upwards of $150,000. Um, so dealing with that debt burden is a, is a much different reality for someone who is going into public service where they're making more like 50, right? Um, so that's, that's sort of the financial reality. Um, and there are 
experts far more versed in it than I am from a, a total, you know, from a total perspective that I could point you towards. Um, but that's sort of the general understanding. Okay, so how do you get scholarship money? The two primary factors. So most law schools give merit-based scholarship. Some have some need-based scholarship, but primarily it's merit-based. And law schools will say, you know, they look at the totality of your application to decide who gets merit-based scholarship. And, and that's true, but two of the most important driving factors are your undergraduate GPA and your LSAT score, okay? And that's for two reasons. And that's the, the same for admissions. One of the reasons is, is because law schools are trying to establish, trying to assess whether someone is going to be, a, be able to survive, but ideally thrive in their academic institution. And they've decided that undergraduate GPA and LSAT are two of the best ways to determine that. Whether or not that's fair, you know, the data on it, I think there's some argument to be made that it's, it's not accurate, but that's, that's what they've got and that's what they use, okay? The other reason is, is that the spectrum of GPAs and LSAT scores they take drives their rankings, right? So they have an incentive to keep those numbers up, all right? And so they want to have you know, competitive students, they want to have those top students, and one of the ways they compete for them with other schools is through merit-based scholarship. Does having that professional development time between undergraduate and law school help? I, I have to say on balance, yes, because generally when you take that time, you in most cases are just a more competitive applicant, right? You have a more robust resume, um, you know, you've developed professionally. Not everyone needs that time. And I, you know, you do see exceptions to that. I know people went straight through and are thriving, um, but depending on what your ultimate goal is, you know, the reality is, is that for the vast majority of people, that time just does make you more competitive. So what makes a really good law school application? What makes a law school application stand out, especially to some of the top schools? Um, okay, outside of... GPA and LSAT. And I always like to give the disclaimer that I see people get into great law schools all the time that really struggled academically in undergrad. And I see people get into great law schools that struggled with the LSAT, right? So just if you're listening to this and you think, well, I've got a couple of bad grades or I had a tough semester um, or my GPA is lower than I think I, I want it to be, that doesn't mean you're not going to law school, okay? That's a good reason to come in and talk to us. Same with the LSAT. These are not make or break, there are ways we can work around these things. But in general, outside of that, what makes a competitive application is, you know, that developed resume. Law schools want to see uh, personal and professional development. They want to see leadership. Um, when you're in undergrad and you're thinking about activities, I want it, they want to see depth, not breadth. So I'd much rather see someone who is highly involved in a leadership role in one or two things versus someone who is a member of multiple organizations. Uh, they want to see someone who has, you know, a developed sense of, like I said, the critical thinking, analytical reasoning. And there's a lot of different ways to showcase that. You can do it academically, you can do it through research, you can do it through, you know, writing a thesis or a capstone. Um, I think that they like to see people who are really cognizant of the world they live in and you know the community they're in. And so, you know, people who are 
showing that they have the ability to perspective take and you know understand what's happening in the world around them and respond to it. So there's no real magic elixir. There's no sort of bulleted list I can give you of things to do and then you'll be a competitive law school applicant. Um, but it's sort of thinking about you know, developing yourself, elevating yourself and what you're interested and passionate about. And then I think that translates to a competitive law school application. Absolutely. What kind of advice do you have for students about letters of recommendation? Okay, so here's the thing with letters of rec. I think that you must have, you must have, unless you are five, 10 years out, I think even five, but after that, it's a different conversation. You must have at least one letter from an academic source, meaning a professor or a TA with extensive teaching experience, okay? Um, ideally, you have two, okay? I really like to have two. Schools are pretty straightforward that they want academically sourced letters. After that, layering on a professional letter can also be valuable, um, but that's sort of the baseline of letters of recommendation. Um, and the job letters of recommendation do is one sort of vouch for you to say, this is an outstanding academic student. This student you know, performs at a high level um, and also telling them you know, how you are in the classroom, how you are in an academic community. And letters of recommendation can also be used to sort of flush out things from your application that you either want to highlight or sort of explain, right? So for example, if you're a STEM student um, and have a lower GPA because you've been taking OCHEM and you know, chemistry and all of these things, it can be valuable to have a letter of recommendation from one of your STEM professors saying, you know, these are really, really hard courses and let me explain to you how they're graded and let me explain to you why even though this person got you know, a BC, I think that they're an outstanding student, right? So that's the other job letters of recommendation can do, or to really vouch for, you know, I supervise this person on their capstone and let me tell you why they're one of the top 10 students I've ever worked with, right? So giving that really personal indication of, in a specific way, what your skills are, what your abilities are, and sort of what law schools are getting when they admit you. That is all excellent advice, and we definitely need to touch on probably the cornerstone of an application, the LSAT. So what advice do you have for students on, you know, if, if students are entering this without any prior knowledge, mm -hmm. how should they start studying? How much time should they budget for in advance of the test? You know, like what kind of scores should, should they be really looking to get? The first thing I'll say is that people say all the time what's well, a good LSAT score um, and a good LSAT score really depends on your goals right what kind of school what school your your goal school is where do you see yourself going and where do you want to be you need an LSAT score that's high enough to get into that school so when we're talking about those top 10 schools or the quote T14 as sort of they how they categorize I don't know why they picked 14 but the top 14 law schools we're thinking in general, not always, but in general, high 160s to 170, okay? Um, when we're talking about, you know, top 50 law schools or top 30, we're talking about more mid 160s, high 150s to mid 160s. Um, so that's sort of a general brush, but again, this the wiggle room there really depends on your, your GPA and some other factors. Um, the LSAT is a, 
skills-based test. It is not a knowledge-based test. It is, there are three different sections. There is a logical reasoning section. There is something called the logic game section. And then there is a reading comprehension section that are graded. There is an ungraded writing section that is taken separately from the official LSAT exam. Right now, the LSAT is given virtually um, through a platform called LSAT Flex, where you take all three sections in a row in two hours and you're done, okay? That's a pretty big departure from the in-person administration we were seeing last year, where you're taking five sections over four hours, one of which is experimental and four are graded, okay? And one section is duplicated. So usually do a logical reasoning twice. So that's the general outline of the exam. The important thing to know is that it's skill-based, not knowledge-based, which means there's not a lot you can do in undergrad to prepare to study for the LSAT. Um, it's not like you know the MCAT where you have to memorize all these you know, different scientific terms and parts of the body and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing to know about it is, is that because it is skill-based, we do find with intensive study, people can master the skills and do well on it. Um, and in order to do that, we generally recommend about four months of study at 15 to 20 hours a week, all right? Some people take need longer, which is absolutely fine. I needed longer. Um, some people, depending on their work schedule, their school schedule, 15 to 20 hours a week may not be realistic. So then they extend out their study schedule further. Um, there's a lot of different ways to approach it, but that's sort of the bare minimum, right? So if someone said to me, today, I'm gonna to take the LSAT in November and apply right now, and I'm just down to starting to study, I'd say, I don't think that's gonna work, right? We're too close to the test. Um, so that's sort of the overview of the test. And I forget sort of what the second part of your question was, how do you study for it? So studying for the LSAT, um, I'm gonna give you sort of a spectrum of options from most expensive to least expensive, but I don't want that to be confused with most effective versus least effective. Um, the most effective expensive option is to get a private tutor, okay? Um, and work with them individually. That's not a financial option for almost anyone I ever talked to. It's very expensive. Um, the second most expensive option is to pay for a commercial course through you know, test masters, Princeton Review, Kaplan, one of those big major test companies, um, that can run you around $1,200, all right? The least expensive option on the other end is self-study, right? Getting books using LSAC, the Law School Admissions Council has a free online LSAT tutoring program called Khan Academy, using Khan Academy, getting books and self-teaching. Um, the Center for Pre-Law Advising offers a five-week or a five-week, five-part um, LSAT sort of introductory web uh, workshop uh, where we introduce you to the exams, you know, talk about the different portions, set up study habits and skills, you know, teach you how to work through the different sections. Um, it's relatively inexpensive compared to a commercial course. I mean, it's much less expensive. It's $100. Um, and the goal is to either set you up to successfully self-study, give you that support you need to self-study, or allow you to sort of test out, do I need the support of a bigger commercial course, okay? I see people being 
affect, you know, getting great results on both ends of that spectrum. I think what's important to keep in mind with LSAT study is that by the time you're applying to law school, you should have a pretty good idea of how you best learn, right? Um, if you're going to go to a lecture or turn on a, a webcast lecture and sort of zone out, it's not really worth paying for a full-length commercial course, right? Um, they tend to be big now it's virtual, but you know, big classes, 50 people being lectured to that sort of thing. Um, if you, but on the other hand, if you're the kind of person who really needs an outline structure and accountability, then if is it all possible, paying for that commercial course might be worth the investment for the return you get potentially on scholarship money. Um, but my sort of baseline about uh, LSAT study is you can pay for the most expensive, exclusive, quote, top of the line LSAT study program. And if you aren't diligently and effectively studying and sticking to your schedule, it's not going to matter. Do a lot of students use that? Yeah. I mean, so we have capacity. It might change now that we've had to be virtual. It was in person before. Um, we give it three times a year. So it's through our office. It's led by one of our advisors who is an LSAT test professional. She's been in the industry for a long time. Um, she is an, her name's Janet Mitchell. She's an expert. She developed the course and has been giving it. And we give it three times a year. We give it in the next one coming up is in October. We'll do one in February. And then we usually do one mid-May right after classes is over and graduation. We see about 50 people register per, I think we cap it. In the past, we've capped it at 50 people and we don't really have a problem filling it. Um, that might change now that it's all virtual, but we do see it being used heavily because it is kind of the, it's the only thing really available in that sort of gap between kind of DIY and pay an extraordinary amount of money for a commercial course. Um, commercial courses offer some self-guided options that are around, you know, $800. And there are definitely some commercial courses that are less expensive than kind of the big companies like Kaplan and Testmasters. Um, but it's sort of, I think, the most bang for your buck in terms of a smaller financial um, investment, but getting a lot of really great info. And um, we also do have some scholarships available for those who for $100 isn't an option for them. What kind of timeline with the application do you normally see, like, uh, especially with emphasis maybe on the applications for the fall semester, but also considering applications for the spring semester, if that uh, is something you see pretty normally? So I'm going to talk about this in two ways. So one is, is that law school runs on one application cycle. Applications open up in September, October, and they close usually uh, mid to late spring. Okay, law almost all law schools, with a few exceptions, but almost all law schools start on a fall semester schedule. There's no spring start, um, so that's sort of the general deal for all law schools. Now, I'm going to talk about the timeline I recommend. Okay, um, my job is to sort of give you the most conservative approach to the best outcome. An important thing to understand about the law school application process and the why the Center for Pre-Law Advising exists is because there are secrets to this process that you wouldn't know and could not know unless you have someone who is in the loop telling you, okay? Uh, how law school application, the application process and in industry has changed even from when I applied to law school, which wasn't 
that long ago, it's changed astronomically just in the past 10 years. Um, so the why we exist is to sort of help students know these secrets to make sure they have that advantage in the application process, okay? So one of the secrets is, is that when you go to apply to law school, you will read, great, law schools take applications up until mid-April. I have plenty of time. They offer the LSAT in the spring. I can take it any time and apply in April. The reality is, is that law schools work on rolling admissions, which also means rolling acceptance. So you are an incredible disadvantage, not just in terms of admissions, but also scholarship money to apply later in the cycle. So we recommend people apply. My recommendation for my applicants by and large is by the end of November. So people who are wanting to start law school in the fall of 2021, ideally should be about to take the LSAT or have already taken it, be working on their applications with the goal of submitting before December 1st, okay? That's my ideal goal for a timeline. There are always gonna be exceptions to that, largely depending on you know, what your numbers are, where you wanna go. Um, but I think that is the general timeline I give to people. That is excellent advice. And as we're running out of time now, I want to turn back to you and your experience as a lawyer. Um, can you speak at all to what you've liked about being a lawyer and what you, you know, liked about uh, the education re you received in pursuing law? I will be frank and honest that most people don't really like law school. Uh, law school isn't fun particularly. It is a, vo a very specific vocational training program for a licensed profession, right? There are no majors, there are no minors. You can definitely focus on th things to some extent, um, but overall, you know, it's a general preparation to sit a state licensing exam and then go into a very specific profession. So the way law is taught is not, is very different from undergrad and most graduate programs, right? It was very different from my master's program, very different from my undergraduate program. And so what I tend to tell people is it's not so important that you want to go to law school or like law school. It's very important that you want to be a lawyer or do a job that requires that degree, right? Or is dramatically impacted by having a law degree. And so I think I will say there are things I loved about law school. There are things I hated. It's really hard. It's really stressful. Um, you know, it is, I always say it is leveled up from any other, you know, it's a terminal degree, right? It's the highest degree you can have in that profession. So it is definitely leveled up from any other educational experience. It's a very different way of thinking from what I had been doing before. Um, so day to day, did I love law school? No, but I met amazing people. And I think I had some of the best professional development experiences in my life, including my clinic. So the immigration justice clinic and clinics are sort of kind of like internal law firms or law organizations in a law school where a lawyer who's also a professor supervises you working on real cases with real clients. And that's really where you learn how to be a lawyer. Okay. I will say what I love about being a lawyer is that I felt I feel as though it gives me the tools and ability to help people in a really functional way, right? What I loved, I will say it's a little different now. The immigration landscape is not great, but prior, you know, what I really loved about being an immigration attorney is people coming to me in true crisis, right? 
separated from their families, scared to be sent back to a place that is unsafe for them where they could be tortured, harmed, or killed. Um, people who are, are desperate to stay with their children, their spouse, their parents, um, who just want to have the safety and security of you know, a better life and saying, you know, I have the, I have tools to help you. There is a road forward. Um, there is a way you can be supported. Um, and for many people, not all, but for many people, there's a way we can sort of help meet your goal. Um, I would say my feelings about that have changed in recent years. It's, it's not a great, it's really hard to be an immigration attorney now. It's really, really hard. Um, but in general, that's why I like being a lawyer is I feel you know, there are solutions I can give people beyond theory um, or even, you know, creating policy, but truly that on the ground implementation person to person. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carolyn. You have definitely given a lot of students a lot of awesome information to think about as they are choosing, uh, you know, their next steps in their education. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.